0: Everybody, Welcome to the Filmotomy Podcast. Uh, this is episode 22. Today is Saturday, is it March 31st, 2018? Yep. And
1: Cesar Chavez Day.
0: No, Happy Birthday Cesar Chavez. Oh, Cesar Chavez. Uh, ah, okay. Yes. Yeah. So today I have with me Daniel Smith-Rousey. Hi! <laughs> Jonathan Sorry. Holmes again and Rob Motto. Hello there. And today we are going to be discussing two topics. One will be the great year that was in film 1999 and what made it so great. And then we'll be picking out one specific film, which we've decided to be eyes wide shut and kind of go further into depth on that one. With So, yeah, 1999. Uh, most people say it's one of the top, Greatest years ever in film? I would have to agree. Although, if you look, I mean, obviously, there's some really bad films, too. Mm-hmm. So, you of know, course. every year doesn't have, you know, a perfect record. But if you look at some of the most popular films of the last 20 years, a lot of them are going to, well, 20, 30 years. A lot of them are going to be from 1999, starting with the Best Picture winner, American Beauty. And then there's The Matrix. There is Fight Club, Magnolia, and, of course, uh, Paul Thomas Anderson has gone on to become a superstar uh, director. And then, of course, we have Jim Carrey, one of his uh, overlooked films, Man on the Moon. And, oh, my God, there's so many more. There's Election that sort of helped bring Alexander Payne to the forefront. Um, You know, any films that you guys
2: can think of? the green mile i mean oh yeah Tom the green Hanks mile was yeah frank Darabont, you know coming back from the shawshank redemption to you know finish out the 90s with this three-hour epic which would you know i thought when the you know when the books came out when the stephen king stories came out i i thought that would be really hard to make into a into a movie but they did a, a great job with it uh any given sunday is another favorite of mine um that i love a lot i mean there's an underrated classic um which i love i don't know what reputation it has outside of my own interest but drop dead gorgeous where i discovered alice and janney um as this like minnesotan like tough kind of tough woman and um but it's a, like this hilarious black satire so those are some of mine
0: yeah how about you guys there any ones that you want to point out
3: go ahead jonathan oh I uh, i was gonna say Oh, oh, South Park, South Park. <laughs> uh, oh, that's that's uh, actually you know what? Uh, I with me and movies, I I saw a lot of movies during the nineties, especially the mid mid to late nineties, that I probably should not have seen, but mom and dad took me to see them anyway. Um, South Park was one of them, uh, <laughs> which is very funny because my mom had no problem with me watching South Park when I was, when it. First aired in um, 1998, I believe it was yeah. 1997. Yeah, mom had no problem with me watching that with that show, and she watched a lot. We were watched. We all watched it together, but she hated the fact that I like booze and butthead. That was where she drew the line. <laughs>
1: yeah, right, those are very different. I'm glad your mom was keen
3: to that. Actually, in <laughs> way, uh, <laughs> cool. Uh, another one, uh, we had Toy Story 2. Oh, yeah! to um, Toy Story, which, you know, as a kid, it was like, you know, it's like, oh, it was okay. And then, over time, it's like, oh, wow, this is actually one of the best sequels ever made. Um, it, it, again, it has very good music by Randy Newman, but also terrific voice acting, especially by Joan, uh, Joan Allen. And, uh, was it Kelsey Grammer that played the, um, Old Prospector? Hmm, right. Is it, is it? Yeah. 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 yeah.
1: Uh, yeah. You, you yeah. it's like, you wouldn't think he'd be that good at that and Beast from X-Men, but you know, he pulls it off.
3: Mm-hmm. And of course, there is, uh, the Sixth Sense, which put M. Night on the map,
2: um, along with Perhaps, that, unfortunately.
0: Yeah. <laughs> Being John Malkovich, which
1: was Spike yeah, Jonze's debut. Yeah, uh, that's uh, you took mine. Oh, sorry.
3: Good. No, that's okay. Oh, and and another another really good um, movie that that put uh, Disney animation that gave Disney animation a run for its bloody money called The Iron Giant. That was right. also the debut of uh, writer director Brad Bird. Mm. Right. So 1999, I just but really, I, I remember if I had to pick movies i remember from 99 the most it would definitely be south park um if yeah, just for obvious reasons uh magnolia even though that was that movie i saw when i was about nine but i didn't understand it and then later on in life i just absolutely loved it uh star wars episode one uh pokemon the first movie uh iron giant toaster to stuff like that that's that's probably what i mo- remember mo- and the matrix that's probably what i just remember most
1: well can i name what i consider some like all-time classics like three kings hasn't come up i think that's a fantastic oh yeah movie. yeah um boys don't cry is a pretty darn great movie uh mm-hmm. i think for like a hundred reasons uh that i won't yeah. get into here uh all about my mother by pedro Almodovar is is a great film um uh which other ones i mean i could name a bunch uh the dream life of angels buena vista social club um cider house rules is pretty good i think the straight story is a terrific film by david lynch if you haven't seen Absolutely. it you should richard farnsworth <laughs> oh my god in that movie he's astonishing uh, and, you know, he was dying at when they were making it, which is, really? knowing a little bit of the backstory is, is fascinating. Oh, wow. Topsy-Turvy, if you've never seen that movie by Mike Lee about Gilbert and Sullivan in the 1880s making Mikado, is a fantastic movie. I mean, maybe you need to be a little bit of a Mike Lee fan. you got to like chatty. You can't be somebody who wants your movies not to be chatty, that's for sure. Mm-hmm. But uh, that's a great movie. Um there are a bunch of fascinating movies. I mean, Julian Donkey Boy was a movie where Harmony Corinne was exploring, uh, you know, the Dogma 95, which a lot of film students learn about if they don't already know. They're like, hmm, what is this Dogma 95 thing? You know, there's the first American attempt to do that. Yeah. Uh, John Sayles Limbo is fascinating. I mean, there's Lock, Lockstock and Two Smoking Barrels was big. Then Go by Doug Lehman uh, cool. kind of established him in some ways. Um, I don't know, Run Lola Run. I mean, there's so many movie dogma. Some people think Kevin Smith's Dogma is a big deal. Oh, that, uh, oh, that was
3: in '99. Oh yeah, oh, it was yeah, big in my okay. childhood. I remember <laughs> that one.
1: Yeah,
3: uh, that was my That was my intro. That was my intro to Kevin Smith. Uh, dogma, again, yeah, right. movie I probably shouldn't have seen. when I was a kid. Yeah, right? there you go. A lot of these fall <laughs> in that category. I see. Well, I got to so
0: draw out. Mom- um, October Sky came out that year in the uh, spring, yes, yes. and it really was the first big break for uh, Jake Gyllenhaal. Yes, right. Yeah, and he was so young looking. I mean, he Free was what? Boy. Yeah, yeah. He was like seventeen, no, no. eighteen when he filmed it. Yep. And yep. by the way, that was directed by Joe Johnston, yep. who uh, yep. he did uh, Captain America: The First
3: event. and the Rocketeer. Yep. And the Rocketeer, right? Yeah, he, <laughs> oh. He's very good at those, kind of,
2: at those period piece yeah. uh, uh, detail films. Yeah, I, I loved I, it when I, I was a kid, but it has not aged well.
1: <laughs> yeah, it was. Good. It's still fine.
0: I mean, it's yeah. sweet. I think you
1: know. Yeah,
3: it, it, I think it adds a nice performance. But Jake Gyllenhaal and Chris Cooper is always reliably good.
0: So yeah, I mean, tons uh, of movies from nineteen ninety nine. Yeah, there's a ton. Austin Powers, <laughs> American uh. Pie. <laughs>
3: Right. <laughs> oh right, American Pie. Yeah. That one I didn't see until I was like uh until I was in middle school. But I did and see a, the second one. And a
1: surfeit of these teen movies like American Jeez, Pie all that's, like, like Ten Things movies, I about like all those that.
2: movies. She's yeah. all that and Ten yeah. Things yeah. I Hate About You yeah. and Yeah. Yeah, and yeah, all those. I just thought that article was great that you uh, that you posted that somebody was just, just couldn't hit the nail on the head. <laughs> on what? Why it's funny? Well, well what Rob, maybe Rob, do you want to explain,
1: since to tell the listeners what that was about?
2: Oh well, basically from from like from I guess out, out of Titanic came all of these like teenage. Uh, I don't I, I don't want to call them romantic comedies, but they're sort of like teenage coming of age stories of like accepting yourself and getting right. the guy and you yeah. know getting the
3: girl that kind of thing. Yeah.
2: Right, yeah, yeah. So, um, you know, things like She's All That and Ten Things I Hate About You. Like, all the movies that got made fun of in Not Another Teen Movie,
3: basically. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you also know. Never Been yeah. Kissed, uh, another
2: right. one. Yeah. Yeah, right.
1: That wasn't 99, but fair, yeah. Same kind of thing. Yeah. I don't think it. Oh, maybe it is. I thought it was 2000. But anyway, but anyway Rob's right yeah it was just she didn't she wrote this article about it but she didn't know that that was because the titanic now I, kn- I know those movies don't have sinking ships from 1912 anyway sorry i uh, i didn't mean to go i mean it's more fun to think about uh to me more fun to think about abre los ojos or uh holy smoke or hideous kinky or uh some of the other great films of that year but uh you know
0: sorry um you're fine you know First question I want to ask you guys is just right off the bat: What is your single favorite movie that came out that year?
1: I'd actually say Being John Malkovich if I have to choose one. Uh, Malkovich, Malkovich, Malkovich. <laughs> it is great, uh, but you know, I, there I might maybe three kings on a different day, but I think it is Malk. I mean, that's I feel like that movie sustains so every line you bounce a quarter off that script, and it's still it fall- Uh, you see a lot of movies that start well in the first 30 minutes, but then they don't seem to come to anything or they can't think of how to end a movie. Downsizing, no. I mean, there's a lot of movies that they can't think, you know, but this, I think it has a great conclusion. I mean, I don't want to give it away, but, you know, that finale where he's looking and, you know, whatever, uh, you you know, from the womb or whatever that is, you know, or from beyond or from the child. I mean, that's just like... Wow, it's a great it's a great movie. It sustains all the way along. It's not just a trick, you know. It's it has something to say about human nature. I mean, it is. It that's a great. I don't know how you get better than that movie. Uh, the the fact that that wasn't one of the five best picture nominees. Oh, I cried that
0: day. <laughs> I was like, yeah. Wait, I, I mean, yeah. right? Like that's stupid. Like uh, Harvey Weinstein, and you know, just ugh. Those yep. those no, years.
1: I mean, uh, it had, had it had been on a lot of lists that year. It was considered close. It was probably the number six or number seven that year. To, you know what I mean? Mm-hmm. They talk about that. What was the number six that year? You know, it probably was. Um, but oh, well, you know, anyway.
0: Right. It was probably either that or my guess is maybe like uh, Magnolia, perhaps. Sure. Sure. But it's hard yeah, to know. I, I mean, I think
1: yeah, you go by where who had been winning other awards, you know, who had been picking up other best director nominations and things, and it had been doing well, as, at least as well as Magnolia. But yeah, yeah, yeah sure.
0: And you know, sure. I got to throw something out before Jonathan and Rob. You guys name your favorite um, that year. Also had the Hurricane from Denzel Washington, oh, yeah, yeah. Oh, yeah. and mm-hmm. he was completely robbed of winning yep. that. Like, Play. Yep. He he should have won best actor sure. that year. I mean, granted, you know. Uh, we're talking about Kevin Spacey here, but now Kevin Spacey's kind of on a pike. So,
2: <laughs> okay. Well, I want to jump in here because sure. like, American Beauty American Beauty is one of those movies that I I will not apologize for. Like a lot of people look back on 1999 and say a million other movies should have won Best Picture. I love American Beauty. I loved it. I think I saw it like I think in 2003 2004 um, as a 14 or 15 year old, and I don't. I don't know. I just love Kevin Spacey's alienated midlife crisis, you know, and his, you know, his inability to sort of be satisfied by suburbia, and he just kind of wakes up to this, like I don't know, this amazing, like person, this amazing performance, and I love it. I mean, it's it's kind of creepy that he's lusting after uh, Mira. You know, uh, I, I can't think of her name right now, but like uh, Mira. Mina oh, Suvari. Mi- yeah. Suvari. Suvari. Like, yeah. Suvari. I wanna care. say Sorvino, but that's not right. Um her name's her name's
1: Angela in the movie, but the Mina Suvari, right. Suvari character.
2: Right. And I think that the dialogue is it's like black kind of black comedy, it's kind of biting. Uh it's it's definitely uh Alan Ball who wrote the screenplay went on to do Six Feet Under and you can sort of see a lot of the, you know, kind of black comedy in, in the dialogue, but Um, I, I love that movie and I think Kevin Kevin Spacey really gave the best performance in a year with amazing performances, but I, I really love that, that role. Um, so, but yeah, I just, uh, I, I really love that movie and I know that in a a year where there's so many to go off of that, you know, it's tough, but yeah, it's, it really won me over and even Annette Benning is great. Yeah,
0: absolutely. I mean, she might even be better than, uh, Kevin Spacey himself.
1: Yeah. Yeah, she probably is. She doesn't have as much screen time, but yeah, she's yes, I agree. She's great.
0: And then I want to throw a shout out to uh, the great Peter Gallagher and his big ass uh, eyebrows. <laughs> <laughs> she should win just for that hotel scene. Yeah. <laughs> <Where they're>...
1: <laughs> <laughs> she probably was very close to winning. Again, I mean, Hillary Swank and boys don't cry. I, I I probably would have voted for her too. I mean, I'm yeah. sorry. It, I I I don't. Nothing, Annette Benning did not do a single thing wrong. But I don't know that role. I mean, when you watch it, I don't know. Yeah.
0: <clears throat> so how about you, Jonathan? Which one's your favorite?
3: Mm. This is tough because it's between uh, it's between two movies. But if I do, it, it, but push comes to shove, it's it's Magnolia with uh, The Matrix is like a very close runner up. I just feel like Magnolia is just, it's, it, it, it's, it's one of those movies that I, I never appreciated when I was, when I was younger, when I first saw it, because I didn't really understand what was going on, and then I, go, I keep going back to it, I keep going back to it, and I, it and mm-hmm. I realized there's just so much depth and so much anguish and beauty going on in that film, especially just the opening scene where you have Ricky Jay narrating uh, about these, uh, Chance encounters and uh, random acts of uh, Coincidence random coincidences and- of fate, and it's all—it's very sublimely well narrated. It's like it's some—it's some of the be- it's like the best. It might just be the one of the best opening sequences I've seen to any film ever. Um, and then you go—you get into the main thrust of the story, and there's there's all these different stories about these characters. These characters, and they, and a lot of them are sad. Some of them are, some of them are funny, and it's all very compelling. And there's always this, this this sense of urgency that Tom the PTA has to the proceedings, especially even though it's a three hour opus about life in Los Angeles on one particular given day. And the thing I love most about it, besides the acting and the writing, is that. And it's really towards that third act where, you know how they have uh, that big um, singing monologue uh, with Amy Mann? Right, right.
0: Yeah, the, um, uh, uh, that, was it Lonely Song In the or something deep. like that? <laughs> well, You're to talk over me
3: while i No, I'm no, deep. no, no, no. Wise Up. It was Wise Up. Oh, okay. okay. Amy all, the yeah. all the characters are singing. And... Uh, you, you get to that part point, and you think like, okay, this whole there's this sense of like, okay, you, you have an idea of what's going to happen and what, what's going to happen to these characters and stuff like that, and then the frogs fall from the sky, and it just becomes a totally different film. Things that you think were going to happen kind of do and don't, <laughs> uh, and it's uh, and then it goes back into that, uh, and the narrative goes back to. Uh, the theme the, the the idea of chance and coincidence and i love how it ties into the main crux of all of these stories
2: and i think um, just real quick i want to just because i love magnolia as well i wrote a presented piece for it for the pta week or the 10 days of pta um but i think that paul thomas anderson really i successfully did what james joyce did in ulysses which is one of the greatest literary accomplishments is to basically tell us the story of a city in, in, in a given day and I, you know i know that uh, i know that you know ulysses obviously has a great almost historical impact among readers and writers but uh, i really feel like that's what pta was trying to capture along with his love for robert altman and los angeles mm-hmm. um, and I yeah I just I love Magnolia I think it is a masterpiece. Um, I, know that, I know that I think it was Daniel who's, who who might have had some issues with it um, when we discussed in the past. Just with you know but I think it was that beginning and yeah I do Mon- but you know, you
1: know let's not re rehearse all of that because uh, I got a lot enough. of
2: stuff I want to talk
1: about. Today.
2: <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah yeah. Fine as a well so,
1: let sorry let me, uh, yes
0: I'm going to jump in then and uh, so my favorite has turned into Fight Club. Uh, for the longest time, it was yeah. The Matrix, but I just mm-hmm. think that Fight Club just offers me more to like. You know, Brad Pitt, Edward Norton, Helena Bonham Carter. That I mean, you talk about another great script that you can bounce a quarter off of. And that's an <laughs> adaptation from Chuck Palahniuk, and boy, that guy could write. Did um, you read the book, by the way? No, but... I- is it different, yeah. like, the ending and everything? No, it's it's pretty bit. close.
1: Well, it's funny because David Fincher defends the movie. Like, they, the, the Warner Brothers wanted him to get it down to under two hours, and he was at, like, two hours and 15 minutes, and he kept saying to Warner Brothers, I think it's Warner, maybe it's No, it's Fox. It, it, it Fox. Oh, Fox, he kept saying, uh, uh, you, I, read the book. I, I, you can't make this book any shorter than I've cut every, I've trimmed everything to like a two second beat, you know? Mm-hmm. And but that's just sort of funny. And I think he's right. I, 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 defend David Fincher's defense, but anyway, keep going. Yeah.
0: Oh, well, uh, no, I didn't even know that. That's, uh, that's great. <laughs> um, you know, I should buy the, um, audio book, uh, cause I might have a better chance of, uh, getting through it but um yeah no i mean (laughs) like (laughs) (laughs) fight club Club is just i mean i know that like fight club has kind of become like a meme now you know it's like a twitter film uh you know it's one of those and and but you know here's the funny part uh just a a little uh funny note uh david fincher has even said that um something like you know okay so his daughter if his daughter meets a new guy, and he asks, what is your favorite film, and the guy says Fight Club, then he says, you should break up with the guy. Right. Mm-hmm. <laughs> because you could Sounds tell like he's you're not
1: going to be dating it. You're not his daughter, are you?
0: <laughs> yeah, Sounds well, because like, I mean, he's afraid that like any guy that would say Fight Club is his favorite movie is probably one of those beer-drinking fraternity fr- frat bros.
2: But that ain't you, is you know? <laughs> it Well, Fight Club is actually it's a really great movie that I think when it came out it wasn't marketed well and it wasn't understood yeah. what, what it yeah. even was because even I as a nine year or nine or ten year old saw the trailers and was like, So it's a movie about guys beating each other up. I don't what? And so, you know, it finally came out on DVD and it was shown to me by a friend. Like when I was 16 or 17, I was like, oh, OK, I guess we can watch this. And when I finally like it got I got it, like what it was saying or what it was about, it was like, this is this is really good. <laughs> like, this is saying something <laughs> profound or it's at least right. attempting to do that. But and then I read the book and um, I actually I like the book a little bit more just because you get you get more of that character um, on paper. And, and, you know, more of his dialogue, I guess. Um, But even Chuck Palahniuk said, you know, that the movie was a improvement over his book, that he actually was more impressed by what he saw than what he you know, what he had written. And so I think that's the highest accomplishment you can kind of get from a writer from an adapted piece of work. Wow. Yeah, I'd say so.
0: Yeah. Well, uh, so Daniel, uh, why don't you uh, go you ahead and tell us some of the, your thoughts know, on know, thank,
1: thank you. I want to actually, you know, it's funny fight club makes a perfect segue into what I want to say, because I don't know if you guys would know this, but like a fight club, well, that's the kind of movie that they wouldn't make anymore. Now I know they're talking about a fight club too. They're also talking about paying Brad Pitt, like half of what they, mm. <laughs> which Pitt is not necessarily into, um, because if they are going to make the Fight Club 2, if they are, bother. They, they can't. The, the budget on Fight Club was $63 million. It made $37 million. Rob just pointed out. It was not marketed well but on the other hand it also entered an unusual ecosystem of the, some of the finer movies that we've already mentioned so that took away some of its audience but it's also true that 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 was an unusual ecosystem I mean we might talk about what the, the, what I want to talk about uh, just for a couple minutes here is why 1999 was so unusual and why we don't really see movies like that anymore we don't see Magnolia is another kind of movie they wouldn't make now uh, at least not at magnolia's 37 million dollar budget it w- it made 22 million um and you could consider both magnolia and fight club what they used to call um mid-range mid-budget movies that's what the, that was their old term for them and they mm-hmm. don't make those anymore they make nope. blockbusters and they make small independent films yeah. for less than 20 million dollars now the first so I guess that brings up two questions. Why did they ever make them (laughs) and why don't they make them anymore? So I want to kind of address both. Well, in case this – before I even answer those two why questions, if if this case needs more proving – Anna and the King, starring Jodie Foster, $92 million budget. It made $39 million. Mm. The Insider, one of the five Best Picture nominees, great movie, but it cost $90 million. It, oh. made, it wow. made $29. Also, by the way, all these numbers are domestic, you know, Canadian and American box office right. numbers. So mm-hmm. I'm not including overseas. But that said um you know with the budget the stated budget before pna for a movie before you yeah, advertising the, the benchmark for a movie being profitable is usually the domestic you know it making at least that you know so they they look at that they they know that they think that that's the way the town has worked for a long time even though they only make half of that money they have to split it with the, you know theaters nonetheless they figure they'll make another that again on D, uh on video or dvd so so basically that's always been the benchmark so if a movie like the hurricane costs 50 million and it makes 51 million at the box office which is what happened in 1999 that a movie movie that's considered to have basically broken even of course that's not exactly right if you want to get into the deep weeds but it's for a podcast it's close enough um, the messenger starring um uh what's her name is joan of arc uh she went on to the resident evil mila Jovovich. Yeah. uh it cost 85 million it made 14 you mm. uh, al you mentioned wow. jim carrey's man wow. on the moon yeah. notorious uh 82 million dollar budget 34 million it made ed tv oh by Ron wow. Howard, the $80 million budget, $22 million at the box office. Yep. There were two there were two Kevin Costner mid-range mid-budget movies. They both cost eighty million. One of them was for love of the game. It made <laughs> thirty-five. The other was Message in a bottle. It made right. fifty-three. Yep. Um, I could go on and on. I mean, it, this might be getting a little boring for the average listener. Forces of Nature, seventy-five million fifty-three. Uh, that it was the, the that was how much it made. That's I think is that the Harrison Ford movie, Astronauts, no. No. Johnny, that's, that's Ben 000. Affleck, and Sandra, ben Affleck and Sandra Bullock movie. I mean, we could go. I could basically. I I've got thirty more of these. The the issue yeah. so. The thing is why – okay, so let's get back to my two if – if I've if i proven my point, <laughs> if I don't have to cite like Martin Scorsese's bringing out the dead, $55 million, it made $17 million, mm. Eastwood's $55 million true crime it also made $17 million. Uh, I mean, I, I could go on and on and on, but the, the point, the larger point is that they won't make these anymore, and you're kind of getting a sense of why. So maybe the question becomes then, why did they ever make them in the first place? Um, that is a really fascinating thing, I think. Um, what had happened by 1999 is several things. You know, Indy Wood, the Harvey Weinstein machine that we complain about. Yes, you know, the the, the story told by Peter Biskin in Down and Dirty Pictures about Sundance and Miramax and those ten years that had a big effect. You have to say that they. They thought they could. So first, a lot of people became big in the early 90s, and they started to to demand bigger salaries. And second, the town wanted to make more movies like that, even though they didn't want to make them at cheap prices. Or not everybody, you know. So they thought, okay, well, we've got this great movie like Pulp Fiction. Let's make uh, another. But Pulp Fiction was made for like 12 million dollars. Let's. But now that it's five years later, let's make another movie that compares to that, like a Fight Club. But now we're going to spend 63 million on it. So it, you have a uh, you know these these things ramp up. That's part of it. Star salaries were also. Do you guys know what a, a twenty for twenty deal is? Who, who here knows what twenty for twenty means?
2: Hollywood. I don't, I don't think I've heard of it. Rob, do you know that term? Is it? I I honestly don't actually. Yeah, there's a good
1: reason that no, but if you Google it, you'll now know it's, it's a deal that met at least 10 actors were getting in 1999, including Tom Hanks, Tom Cruise, a bunch of people, you know, um, it means that they make 20, they, their deal on the movie is a $20 million, uh, for 20%, whichever is 20% of the gross, or whichever wow. is higher. Hmm. That was actually a standard. I mean, that had become after sort of Jim Carrey pioneered it in the late 90s. Wow. Uh, once Jim Carrey was getting that, everybody felt – or not everybody um, – felt like they wanted it. So basically all the major, you know, Mel Gibbs, I mean, I don't even have to tell you who they are. You know who they are. Arnold Schwarzenegger got that for End of Days, a movie that cost 100 million, made 67 million. You know, that's a footnote of this year that we wouldn't otherwise talk about. But he was, (laughs) Schwarzenegger was a a 20 for 20 guy. Um, So there were a bunch of, and they, So you had maybe 10 actors with the 20 for 20 deal, and you had maybe 10 other ones like Denzel Washington and Brad Pitt who were just under that. They were like 15 for 15 or so. And that pushes up budgets. That really does. The the weird thing is that ended um how did it end uh there's a that's a fascinating story basically it was ended by a bunch of hobbits and a bunch of uh what are those called (laughs) muggles wizards oh (laughs) yeah
3: yeah. it was because
1: of the success of lord of the rings and harry potter that hollywood said oh we don't have to pay stars 20 million dollars we can just adapt uh popular literature and or comic books and whatever you know so they that happened later it doesn't you don't see that in 99 though there's nothing like that in 99 the only you know i mean that's the thing what we're talking about very few of them are literary adaptations i hope that's obvious to everybody that you're we all the movies we've just mentioned i guess fight club is the one that might be that's from a book you know but these days if you're counting comic books obviously all the big movies you know you can't count star wars as being from a book it's i mean it's not they they laugh at the literary the 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 authorized hundred, hundred and fifty literary adaptations of Star Wars. They don't use those when they go back and do the prequels. They they, they scramble their own canon. Um, but anyway, so I guess, you know, obviously the town's changed. Nobody's getting a 20 for 20 deal anymore. No one, except kind of Robert Downey Jr. We don't even, none of us are allowed to know exactly what he's making on these movies. Um, but we know that nobody, no, no one who ever got it is currently getting it. Nothing. So so they, the town changed, um, and it had to. Um, so I think those are. So, but I do. Here's what I would say, and, and after finishing this long rant, I do. As despite the fact that we don't, I know that nobody's necessarily hankering for. Um, I don't know a movie like uh, what is a movie that we would want to like. Uh, I, well, I'm trying to think of you know random hearts. That's the one I was trying to think of before. Harrison Ford, you know, 64 million. Uh, I made 31 million. Uh, at first sight, where Val Kilmer plays blind guy sixty million cost sixty million it made twenty two I know we 're not really looking for these movies anymore, but I do think something has been lost. I think it 's sad you know we can 't br- basically bringing out the dead, true crime. some of these movies we 've been talking about losing the mid range mid budget movie is sort of sad, basically the only way. I think it's one reason we haven't seen Martin Scorsese and, and Leo DiCaprio make that Devil in the White City that they've been promising to make for 15 years because they can't decide if it's a big budget movie or not. And, so in, and that's the thing. In 99, that would have gotten made in a heartbeat. The book didn't come out until 2002, so that's impossible. But I'm saying, like, you know, that, that it, that's what we've lost, and it's a little sad. Um, now I want to hear everybody else's comments on the, this long rant.
2: Just real quick, yeah, I want to I want to jump in here real quick. Um, I, this is something that is talked about, has been talked about the last three years on my my favorite film podcast, and so I have been aware that like there is no middle anymore. There is no middle range. I mean, you're talking about what I would even consider a little more than higher range. You know, the seventy five to ninety million dollar budget. But even now, it's hard to find a picture with a $50, $60 million dollar budget. Where Absolutely. Yep. You know that movie might come out in the summer, and it might appeal to maybe genre fans, but it's going to be pretty conventional because it needs to make back its box office.
0: Or like it Baby also Driver. goes straight
2: to Netflix, right? And right. and so what we have now is we have big tentpole movies, so Kong Skull Island. No offense, Al,
3: and the Marvel <laughs> That's movies, all right. and
2: and the clo- i mean even the the big i guess the bigger cloverfield movies but um but stuff like that and then you have the indies you know you have stuff yeah. like, i mean get out and ladybird and right. these movies these are indie movies these aren't large oh, yeah. scale auteur kind of like visionary thing you know not i'm not taking anything away from them it's just you can only do so much with a limited budget and I mean, this is something I kind of explain a little bit to my girlfriend when we're watching movies is like the budget matters with what you can do. Like it, you have to be able to execute what resources you have available to you, which, again, is kind of what's great about a director. But, yeah, we don't have the we don't have those middle range movie more. You know, the the uh, again for adults is what I kind of think of Yeah, know, it's movies yeah. for adults, because yep. as much as the tent poles we might love those as fans or whatever they they're geared for for kids for teenagers for people you know that are a little younger um i think so but i mean that's my take is that just you no know. yeah we don't have that anymore. So
1: Let me give, wait, uh, just a couple more. Now that I've looked down my list, like Ride with the Devil by Ang Lee. I, I think that's a fine film. It, it cost 38 million. Nowadays, it would cost 3.8 if he was allowed to make it. It was only, uh, it made like a million. It was a huge failure. Cradle Will Rock is another example of that. Uh, Tim mm-hmm. Robbins' movie about the Depression and, uh, well, a bunch of things. It's, it cost 36. It made three, you know, mm-hmm. Snow Falling on Cedars. With Ethan Hawke, that literary adaptation made cost thirty five. It made fifteen. Pushing Tin, I think one of you is going to be writing about that. Cost thirty three. Made eight. See, they won't make these movies anymore. I'm just basically agreeing. I'm trying, and I'm trying to get the reason I'm mentioning these examples is to give people a sense of what we, what you're not seeing. You you, Mm. wouldn't current audiences don't get you don't get snow falling on cedars you're not going to get that because or certainly you're not going to get it at anything like the budget it was made at you know and i think that is a loss i think let's I, i you know Maybe they're not all masterpieces. We could argue Jacob the Liar with Robin Williams. <laughs> <Yeah. laughs> the forty-five million they spent on that—maybe it deserved to make five million. But what it is is Hollywood's not making those bets anymore. It's not spending fifty million on Angelus Ashes to, to make thirteen million. Um, I mean, I, I love that movie actually, but you know, they want what I'm—that's what I'm saying. We lose those, and I do think it's a loss. Um, Jonathan or Al want to comment?
3: So, basically, I think what you're saying is that um, right now it's 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 either extreme. It's either a huge uh, temple movie or it's just this small indie movie, and there's no real equilibrium between the two. Is I, that what you're getting at?
1: Uh, yeah, I mean that's the evidence that we see here. That, yeah, and they lost, they, I mean, they, by the way, I should add that the total they lost, they lost a lot of money in 1999. I mean, we look at it as like halcyon days. Hollywood looks at it as a nightmare because mm-hmm. they like, the, the total lost by the town is about a half a billion dollars, roughly. I mean. Um, <laughs> the sixth sense if it hadn't been for the sixth sense the loss would have been much worse <laughs> that was a fluke what if the sixth sense hadn't even come out you know i mean that and or what if i don't know somehow they hadn't marketed it well so it would have been, i mean it's crazy to think how much they lost so that you can see why they retrenched i i mean in a way i sort of don't
2: blame the town you know uh but it, but i but yeah it's a loss you know It's also the beginning of the end because of X-Men. You know, X-Men was really that first comic book movie that catapulted all the other properties to be made. And it was like, okay, here we go. And so you can look at it as the beginning of the end of, you know, modern-day Hollywood, too. But, yeah. Sure. That's fair. I also like Office Space, by the way. Office Space. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. The creator That's, of yeah, Beavis and Butthead,
1: make, by the way. <laughs> they'd make that now because it was so indie. They'd spend a ten million on an office space now. Right, that, right. that they could do yeah. because it was so cheap. Jennifer yes. Aniston was willing to work for nothing, so that was fine. They'll do that now. Sorry, but that sorry, we should have mentioned that
0: before. Yeah. Fine. Well, uh, my thought, I mean, okay, so you, I mean, you're absolutely right, uh, Daniel. Uh, they don't make these B movies anymore, or, or I shouldn't say B movies, <laughs> but I, I guess I mean B-movies. Yeah, like a mid-range. range -range. Yeah. Um, Because you're right. I mean, it seems like all, like, if I go to the theater, for instance, it's going to be either a big, huge blockbuster or it's going to be an Oscar movie. Right. And I don't go to these um, mid-range movies anymore. I mean, I catch them either on Netflix or I wait to rent them. And although, you know, I feel like if we're counting what is now probably – in the um, budget range of what a mid-range film is, it's probably, like, a fairly successful sequels to horror films, or it's these awful comedies. Yeah. You know, sure. so it's like a Jigsaw or, you know, um, Horrible Bosses 2.
3: Or something from Blum- for uh, Blumhouse.
0: Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Um, you know, that, that make... Somewhat (laughs) names for themselves, um, but still are primarily known for their DVD and Blu-ray sales long after they've left the theater. Right. Because, again, going back to the theater thing, I just feel like people don't want to spend money on the budgeted films unless it's an Oscar movie with, like, a 98 on Rotten Tomatoes. But, you know, these mid-range films, they don't... They, they get like, you know, a 66 on Rotten Tomatoes and they're going to make maybe, you know, maybe $20 million.
2: But see, this is what comes. It, this is one of my sticking points when it comes to being a movie watcher. Right. Is that uh, I, I also feel like the viewing habits have changed because it used to be about investment. Right. It used to be about, hey, I'm going to the movie at 3.05 and I got to be there. It's going to start without me. So I got to be there. I got to have my popcorn and I got to have my, you know, I got to have everything ready to go and watch the movie because it's starting at 3.05. It's not going to wait for me. It's not going to. So I love that. I love that you have to make yourself available to watch this art, you know, to watch this thing, um, to put yourself in a place at a specific time and be ready and be ready and be invested. And maybe that's me as like a, a serious cinephile. I don't know if I can use that word, but <laughs> being being almost obsessed with the movie format and the whole aspect of it. Um, but I feel like that's part of it too. That you know, people don't want to go and invest time when you have people being loud in the movie theater and you know talking and on their cell phone and all these issues. And I feel like that is part of that decline as well. I mean, I know it comes down to straight money and box office, but you know, the movie going experience isn't what it was either.
0: <laughs> yeah, I and am. that's 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 kind of me in a nutshell right there. I mean, I yeah. can't stand when people talk during movies. Like sure. I went when I went and saw Kong Skull Island, the, there was a woman who sat literally right behind me was talking almost the entire way through.
4: <sighs>
0: and yeah, you know, worst. What do you do about that? It's- Turn yeah. around and tell them to be quiet. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I feel like it would have been a bigger confrontation, though.
2: No, you're right. It, I mean, that's and that's why, you know, we all kind of have to live in society yeah. to some <laughs> degree or another. And so <laughs> I get it. No we all have to kind of get along.
0: And there's,
1: get, there's an, an argument rude. that, uh, you know. Hollywood shot itself in the foot with too much investment in like DVDs and making the home video experience so nice like you know nicer speakers or something like you know it's so nice at home now in a way that maybe it wasn't in 1999 that um you know why would you bother I mean that might be one reason you you know it's like it's a sort of a chicken and the egg you know that the they're not making adult movies anymore, so adults don't want to go to movies. But maybe the adults walked away in the first place. But maybe they made too many bicentennial man style movies for adults, so they, the adults didn't have a reason to go. <laughs> uh, I mean, you know, it's a, it's kind of a circular argument, but it is interesting and sort of. I I still do. I mean, I it's I, I guess I find it fascinating. You know that um, that we, that you know we, I don't know. I just I guess it's sad. I want more man the moon type uh, experiments like where Jim Carrey goes crazy to play Andy Kaufman and I, I know I'm not going to get them and so I'm sad that's it
0: I worry about films disappearing you know studios just going to not want to even put them out into into the public and they'll be like it's just safer to shelve them and they don't exist anymore
1: mm-hmm. yeah
0: sure yes this is of licensing problems and, and if everything goes digital for instance what is that gonna do i mean you know because again the licensing there is a lot different than putting it into a theater or being able to buy it on blu-ray it's
1: interesting 1999 is also considered by some film historians to be the birth of digital cinema funny you mentioned that um because there were several things happening in 99 and they probably overlap with the trends we're talking about. Um, You know, Toy Story 2 was um, a a breakthrough showing that people didn't mind watching these kind of digitalized characters. I mean, yes, they'd shown that in Toy Story, but it was... Toy Story, I mean, whatever, they proved it again. Plus, you had the Phantom Menace. You had, at the time, uh, George Lucas was a Phantom Menace to theater owners. He said, you better convert all your theaters to digital by 2005 or you're not getting episode three. He later uh, reneged on that threat. But in other, it's a thing, you know, that it was, and... The first all digital movie was the, uh, being made. I guess if Rob can cite X Men from two thousand, I can cite "O Brother, Where Art Thou" from also from the same year two thousand. But oh, during nineteen, okay. 19- like well, dur- but no, it's no, but Rob is right because during the year of that is nineteen ninety nine, they were making X Men, and during the year okay. that is nineteen ninety nine, the Coen Brothers were literally processing every single shot of Oh Brother Where Art Thou in in a digital way. That had never been done. So that was a breakthrough. And then that kind of became, I don't want to say became standard, but what happened is you have digital becomes this big thing where every movie is expected to kind of have these digital effects, or, or, or if it's going to ask for your blockbuster dollars, if it's going to ask for your $12, you know, when you go out to a movie, it's it better be digitally sort of goosed. And, of course, that drives up budget. Um, but, you know, maybe you could also argue it, mo- these movies look really cool, um, you know, and some of them really
2: do. I, I think that's an important thing, too. So, yeah. But it's important to, like, point—I feel like it's really important to point out that that George Lucas, one of the new Hollywood 70s brats, which technically he doesn't—I mean, he belongs to it, I guess, because of his relationship with those people and with Spielberg. But, like, for him to not champion something like film—and I know he's talking about Star Wars, but for for, for any major director of that period who has worked with film to not champion it— I mean, it's their right. I'm Who am I to say that? But is almost like a slap in the face to real, like... And I, again, I'm not trying to, like, take ownership over it, but real yeah. movie lovers, real people who love film, who love the actual, like, ro- you know, the movement of that, of what is being shot, not just sort of, did like, a digital camera, which is fine, and you can get a lot, you know, a lot of what you can on film, but I feel like that warmth, that that real... That real art form is kind of lost when you yeah. go digital, but that's just again that's my obsession over directors and auteurs and you know that kind sure. of vision. But
1: yeah, I think it's fine if you have a Coens who who are trying to make this like weird nineteen thirties sepia statement, but you, but and you know somebody like a whatever a Wes Anderson if they want to do something like a Fantastic Mister Fox, I'm all for it. But I think that yeah, in general. Digital does get used as a sort of a, I don't know, as an easy, as a crutch, as opposed to as an artistic statement. So I'm with you.
0: So the next thing we're going to be doing here is we'll be discussing Eyes Wide Shut, which is a movie that um, you can come at from many different ways. You can either love it or hate it or have absolutely no idea what you think because, again, it's just one of those kinds of films. It's almost like it was a David uh, Lynch film, but from the master... Who you know was around before David Lynch, and that was of course Stanley Kubrick. This was his last film, um, released in the summer of 1999. He happened to pass away just months before it was released in theaters, which is tragic. But he you know he uh, he at least got to finish it, thank goodness. And um, you know, it, I think part of the reason why he passed away that year is because. You know, he's one of those directors that puts so much energy into putting together as perfect a film as it can be. And this one just wore him out. And and you can tell it on screen because it's crazy. But so what is this film? All right. So the premise, according to IMDb, at least, is it says it's a New York City doctor who is married to an art curator pushes himself on a harrowing and dangerous night-long odyssey of sexual and moral discovery after his wife admits that she almost cheated on him. And it stars Tom Cruise, Nicole Kidman, uh, Sidney Pollack, and it's even got a couple appearances uh, from Todd Field, who, interestingly enough, went on to direct In the Bedroom, which was nominated for Best Picture... Oh, that's Todd Field. That's okay, Todd Field is Nick Nightingale, and he also directed Little Children, the
2: which was pedo- great. I love yeah, that the, movie. Yeah, the pedophile movie with mm-hmm. uh, starring um, Rorschach, Patrick Wilson, and uh, Jackie Earl Haley. Yeah, yeah, Jackie Earl Haley, and um,
0: yeah, other other uh, people. This I mean, this was a big cast. Um, a lot of people in this film. But those seem to be kind of the main ones. Oh, and then also Thomas Gibson, who has one of those faces that you may recognize, but you don't necessarily. (laughs) Yeah, he was. That's right. He was Greg. I I always think of him as um, he's uh, in Criminal Minds. Yeah, right. Mm -hmm. Um, But yeah, you're right. He was in Dharma Gregg Greg before Criminal Minds. And then we had um, Alan Cumming as playing the desk clerk. Right. Yep. And when then we had a 16-year-old Lily Sobieski who played Milich's mm-hmm. daughter. And I found that really strange because she was, every time we saw her, she was in her underwear. Yep. And she was only like 15 or 16 years old, and I didn't really know what to make of that.
2: Well, it is supposed to be heighten the creep factor of the fact that, like, what ha- what is happening in that scene is, you know, they open the costume shop, you know, the rainbow, as it's called. The Rainbow Costume Shop to get, uh, you know, a mask for the for the orgy soirée that Tom Cruise's character is wanting to go to, and he pays the guy two hundred dollars over the rental to let him in because it's one o'clock in the morning. It's super early or super late, and you know he's getting getting his costume for him, and he finds you know his daughter in the back with two Chinese or Japanese businessmen, and <laughs> yeah. it's. Like what's happening and he's outraged and he's gonna call the police. And then you know, when he brings back the costume, you know, after the party, mm-hmm. he's his his daughter again with the same two, you know, Asian businessmen. And it's very it's assumed basically that there's some kind of an arrangement has come has has, you know, come forward and that maybe it's hinting at possibly the fact that this guy is now going to like pimp out his daughter. And just like, you know, it's this crazy, creepy kind of like you are this wealthy doctor and how close are you to the abyss you know how close are you to ha- some really dark things actually happening and maybe you want to just you know stick to your you know life that you have and right. you don't want to venture <laughs> too far into the into that abyss because who knows what you might find so i mean it was sort of that kind of summation yeah. uh, but but mainly visual you know <laughs> you're kind of being informed of all of that just from that just what we're being shown. So. Absolutely. Well, let me uh, let me get your guys' opinions first on
0: the film itself. Starting with mm-hmm. Jonathan, this was your first time watching it, right?
3: Yes, it was. What did you think? Uh, it, it's. I felt like it, it, it. I mean, and I mean this in a very good way. It's it. It, it, it felt like like almost like uh, like overlooked because there's so much. Uh. That was going on. Like, there was so much that I was experiencing. Uh, I originally, I thought, okay, uh, the scene where uh, Tom, where Tom and Nicole's character uh, he finds out that she almost had an affair, but with the with with sailor, or it, was, it was a sailor, right? Or is it a navy man or yeah, something like that? Sailor. Uh, and they're having this argument, and I felt like, okay, oh, this is problem. This is a movie that that's. I'm talking about sexual politics and the hypocrisy of the, the hypocrisy, the that that sort of hypocrisy between uh, about about sex and about lust and about longing and all that between men and women. And I think it it, it, it kind of is it to an to an extent, but the whole thing feels like it's almost like a dream. It, it's a dream. It, a dream-like state if that makes any sense yeah it does because, because the events that happen are just feel so i i, I guess so so ludicrous and so just out of the ordinary it feels like okay maybe maybe this whole thing is a metaphor for uh, a dream but otherwise it it, it it like what daniel said that this movie, like, demands your attention the whole way through, and the attention to detail is uh, impeccable.
0: Yeah. Well, I mean, Kubrick, that was his thing. I mean, he's he's primarily almost known more for his structuring and his attention to detail. and
3: um, He's a perfectionist.
2: Yes, perfectionist. I mean, right and down to... Oh, no, what? Go ahead. No, no, no. I was going to say the thing with Kubrick that I that stands out the most is his insistence. So you can and you hear this throughout with just that score, that piano. Oh yeah. Tone. Yes. And it's oh my just god. Like, you know, I was watching it with my girlfriend, and she's just like, "I fucking hate this movie. Why are you so?" And she she just didn't like it. But it, to me, that was his just like keeping up the pressure, keeping up the anxiety of mm-hmm. the movie because it is a very anxious feeling movie. It is very just like. Okay, is something about to happen? Nope. Is something about to happen? No. Nope. You know, well, you know, it, know it, it, it builds.
0: And you know, the interesting thing with that, Rob, is uh, I noticed that a lot—at least in the first half of the film—a lot of mm-hmm. the music came from the room. It wasn't overdubbed. I mean, it was in the room with them. Mm-hmm. Oh. And like you, you're, you know, because you're, they're listening to this, those symphonies. Right. And you, you, you just think it's it's a soundtrack, and then you realize, oh, my God, no, they're actually preparing for this party and such while listening to this CD. And then I think that happens a couple other times where, oh, like, even with the piano playing and the jazz and all that stuff, the music yeah. is in the room. And then when it actually plays over the film, it's
2: almost like it's impossible to handle right because you're you're sort of bringing that that musical it's not a musical cue necessarily but it's kind of used in that way where you're bringing it back to imp, like uh, impose those the feeling that you had when it was used prior
4: mm-hmm. and
2: so it can be just it could be used so effectively and i think it is especially when he picks up the paper you know and he reads what yeah you know what what had happened and everything and it's just like it's very effective by the way
0: that's um, kind of becoming an iconic um moment in the film yeah when when he you know the the newspaper he's sitting against the wall and he slowly puts the newspaper down and he just has that look on his face that is one of the most iconic images in the film itself um and you know, granted, I think part of that, though, is that if you Google search it, you're not going to find a lot at the party because I don't think they want to reveal that. Yeah, I think they want to let those kind of images uh, stay to be uh, discovered when you're watching it. Um, yeah. And I thought that was really cool. Now, when you guys were watching this, did you guys know who was
2: up to like who was behind this? No, and I don't think that you do know. Yeah. I mean, I've this was the second time that I watched yeah. it, and you're that's I, that's the effective part of the storytelling that's going on is to sort of keep you in a place of of not knowing, mm-hmm. of assuming that you're being watched. To to I mean to know that you're kind of out of sorts, you're out of place in this world. You, you know, you might think you're this wealthy Manhattan doctor who is free to kind of roam anywhere he pleases, and you find. No, they're not. There are very, (laughs) there are very real barriers preventing me from, you know, reaching this level or whatever. And so, and and I don't know. Maybe it's just that that has always creeped me out—the fact that there is power at these at these levels where you could be crushed like a bug, like you could be completely, and you do not matter to these people. Well, it's almost like the Illuminati. It, no, no, no. That's exactly well, and a lot of conspiracy theorists actually point to this movie. What was Stanley Kubrick really saying? You know, and it's like I don't, I don't think that that's true necessarily. But <laughs> I believe, I believe that rich people get together and have a good time. Yes, mm-hmm. I do believe that has been shown throughout <laughs> history. But you know, yeah, I don't, I don't know that there's any deeper message other than just power in like you know the hand in the hands of a few kind of thing.
1: But. Mm-hmm.
2: um yeah, it's just really creepy. It's like an adult wizard of oz to me, you know. <laughs> don't look at don't look at the man behind. Oh yeah. <laughs> the curtain kind of thing. Um so I yeah, I, I just really love it. It's like a dark adult wizard of oz to me. Well, you know,
0: <laughs> watching it again tonight, I realized one thing about it. Like I think yeah. it's a really well-crafted film. Really mm-hmm. interesting story. My only problem and I I guess this seems to be a thing as I get older. I just notice this more. And sometimes yeah. I just ignore it or it's not a problem. But, like, tonight it just felt sort of like... Okay, the pacing. It feels like the movie is too long.
3: Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I, I kind of picked that up when I was watching it. it because it, 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 it just... it Even though it's, it, it's a movie that is that, that builds on uh, mood and atmosphere, it's very... Anxious, ang- 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 kind of anxious. Written. Uh, it's a sl- this. This is a very sl- a simmer. Yeah, it's like a, s- a slow building kind of movie.
0: It's almost like a baseball game, where you <laughs> know. I mean, like we're used to our our attention spans nowadays are really short. You know, and so. We, you know, that's why people love games like uh, basketball and football because it's almost like the action never stops. But in baseball, it's almost like I equate the dialogue to like a pitcher. You know, they throw a pitch. That's some of the dialogue. Then you wait thirty seconds and you get another pitch. That's more dialogue. right <laughs> and i just found it like i mean i get that you know you have these dramatic pauses right and 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 then slow reveals and slow expressions and responses but at the same time it's like would we i wonder if if just audience goers in general would like sit through something like that nowadays
2: well no and that, i wrote about the, the i wrote about this for filmotomy um for the for talking about 1999 about Eyes Wide Shut uh, just last night, okay. where this movie would not get made today, it has a 65 million dollar budget and it's almost three hours long, and it was a summer release. It was a <laughs> right. summer release. Oh. Yeah, if yeah. I, mean, if I could so sit bizarre. in a theater. If I could sit in a theater and watch a Stanley Cooper <laughs> movie in the summer, I, I that. I'm sorry. That is a great that that is a great experience to be able to do something like that, and the fact that it ended up being profitable because of I think it was international box office returns that it ultimately made its money back. But this movie would not get made today. You have the two two of the biggest stars in the world, kind of going on. Well, at least one of them going on this like sexual misadventure, and 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 I guess bacchanalia, from his mindset at least, (laughs) but it obviously doesn't turn out that way. And it's, I don't know, it's this great, it's this great anti-commercial movie, you know? It does, it's not there to sell anything other than its art. And for the fact that that was in an American cinema in the summer of 1999 competing against who knows what else, maybe The Matrix. Star (laughs) Wars. (laughs) I, I
0: love that. I love thinking about that. Yeah, it's really interesting. Um, and, you know, I, I also really... I did really like the design of the film. Like, the city mm-hmm. streets of New York.
2: And, yeah, which was London, by the way.
3: It yeah, wasn't
2: in New York. I, I yeah, they shot most of
3: this in London, and some exterior shots were shot. So only the only things that were actually shot in New York was were exterior shots, That was it.
0: Yeah, that's really interesting, because... Uh, IMDb credits it as a UK-slash-USA release. Yeah. I think of it as just an American film, because it, the whole thing takes place in America, and it's exactly. American characters. And, right. And um, the fact that, like, okay, so I think it was produced by a Stanley Kubrick Productions, but mm-hmm. what what the heck does that mean? You know, Stanley Kubrick was a guy, you know? He, he's not a production. <laughs> yeah. So... But, uh, yeah, it's it's interesting that a lot of the um, film was shot over there in England, but yet uh, you would never really know it by watching it because the whole thing takes place in New York. And the fact that, like, what's, I think the other thing that's interesting, though, about this, I noticed this as well, is that when you're watching it, if you're paying attention to the idea of space, space and time, like mm-hmm. where is he in the city like when he has to leave his apartment how far is he actually going because you know he's he's taking a taxi everywhere and so you realize it's even though it seems like he went out of the city he's still just on the island of manhattan except right. for of course when he goes to the the castle
3: Right, like, I think it's that sort that of like was, an odyssey, you know. Yeah, yeah sort I, think, of like I feel like, like so, I feel like that's that kind of adds to my thing is that it's kind of this dreamlike state where mm-hmm. the taxi, it, it, the taxi, or him walking is just mm-hmm. going from one stage of, of, of the dream to another. But I find it
0: funny that that whole time he's still on the island of Manhattan. He never left.
2: Yeah.
0: Even though you'd swear like these are different people and different different streets and different everything exactly exactly and, I, I, and that is really fascinating that kubrick was able to make a film where it feels like any next moment he's somewhere else he's in another place but in reality he's sharing his own space with his wife even though they're not in and many scenes together i mean she's mm-hmm. she's still in the city with him
2: right like, and that's atmosphere, you know. I think. You know, creating that kind of that mood and that that experience for the viewer. Yeah, you know, he's carrying Nicole Kidman. You know, because it, it didn't even happen. She almost, she almost had an affair, or she right. was fantasizing about having an affair. And it's like, <laughs> like you know, you're you're that broken down by that. You're that haunted by the fact that your wife could have a sexual fantasy about someone else. Mm-hmm. That you're just, that you, you know you need to <laughs> sort of like prove something or find some some i mean he is kind of a boob tom cruise's character i mean Uh he i I, you know he's a great sort of like surface to sort of project this character onto but he he believes what he's told by everybody along the way Mm -hmm. you know he believes he believes sydney pollock when he tells him that you know the that the the girl you know died of a simple overdose you know he believes the um the you know the call girl's friend who tells him that she has hiv you know he believes uh he believes everything that he comes into contact with in terms of another person and so he's sort of just like drifting along and not you know, like completely unaware of how close to you know maybe danger he is until potentially it's too late yeah so you know, it's, I don't know. I feel like it's some kind of a parable. Like it's, like Stanley Kubrick is just like driving us insane with like, <laughs> hey, if you work hard enough, you'll figure it out. Right. You know, kind of thing. So.
0: Well, you know, getting back to um, that argument they were having near the beginning of the film after they yeah. come back from the party, mm-hmm. I was watching that and I don't know if it's just because I, I don't know, like I'm a 36-year-old man, but like mm-hmm. I, I had a problem with her attacking
2: him. Like, well, she was in, she was uh, provoking. She oh, was definitely yeah, yeah. instigating an argument because I don't know was was unsatisfied but, about something. Didn't oh didn't yeah, like and, that he came to that conclusion. <laughs> and I get that, like where
0: where the script was going, where the film was going with that. You know, I mean they have yeah. to, they have that's part of the setup, right? But you know, just if you're in that single moment. And that's all you're going to pay attention to is just that scene. Yeah. I feel like she was definitely, it's like she was getting mad at him for for something that she did. And she didn't like his answer. And I thought, hey, the who the hell are you for, like, criticizing him? He loves you, you stupid idiot. Yeah, right. You know? <laughs> and, and, like, you should be happy that some guy wanted to have sex with you because you're beautiful
2: you know no, no i i mean yeah <laughs> no 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 but this is a conversation that we're still having today right that that being see being a woman is like that tough position of saying okay yes i acknowledge what society is mm-hmm. and i acknowledge that yes i am looked at by a large portion for that for my physical beauty and attractiveness however i am a person too yeah. and doesn't somebody want to talk to me because I'm interesting or I have something to say or, and so it does come back to these themes of sexism of like what we really believe about what we really think when -hmm. it comes down to the roles of men and women in society. And so I think, I think that was really a way of putting that on screen and, and having it affect, Mm -hmm. uh, you know, Bill, (laughs) Tom Cruise's character as he heads out into the night. And, you know, he, he just, just like, I need to, I need to like, Deal with this now because he's like shooken out of his security of of being that you know wealthy Manhattan doctor who has seemingly has everything, right yet can't appreciate it or can't see what's right
0: in front of him. Yeah, I don't know. It's so. I mean, I got, I got, I, I really like the film, but I, I yeah. do have a couple issues with it as well. I mean, that scene mm-hmm. was kind of one of them. I mean, I'm not, I'm not blaming the writers for doing it that way. I just feel like. You know, in grand, you know, this is almost 20 years ago as well. Yeah, we probably thought differently back then. If 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 I was in a conversation like that, and and say that you know Nicole Kidman was my wife, she's asking this those kinds of questions, I would just say, look, just appreciate that that you know I I want to be with you, I love you, I find you attractive. And you should realize that I'm not the only one. Other guys are going to think that as well. But we also think with our dicks a lot of the times before we think with our minds, (laughs) you know, you see a beautiful woman at a party. She's got a wine glass in her hand and she appears to be at least buzzed, if not drunk. I don't think you're going to be asking her about um, Proust. You're going to ask her about is she
2: married?
0: (laughs) What is her sexual situation? (laughs)
2: because that's what that is i mean that's what that is and like for us to sort of deny that is to sort of be dishonest frankly is to sort of just say well that's not that doesn't exist of course it exists so like let's acknowledge it and just move on or whatever you know but um yeah no i i yeah but i it's one i think that's one of the reasons i think it is a wonderfully made movie that is about so many things i mean He had wanted to make this movie for over 20 years. Mm
4: -hmm.
2: Um, You know, he had acquired the rights to the book. Uh, And, you know, all his movies are about adaptations. But I just, you know, it's this sort of searching inventory um, of, I don't know, of status and wealth. and, And I think you're right. It's about sort of appreciating, you know the world you live in and not sort of going too far because certainly you don't know what's out there. Like you don't know what you don't know kind of idea, but yeah. And
0: I mean, it's a good mystery too. I, I, I think like the way it unfolds in the second half is, is so fantastic. I think the second half is a lot better than the first half.
2: Yeah, I mean, the first is really a, a, sort of a slow burn and slow immersion into their lives in and, yeah. and New York and that kind of thing. Because yeah. I was looking at the
0: time for, like, what,
2: wh- how long
0: into the film was it when he goes to that party? And it's, yeah. it's almost exactly halfway. Yeah. So I think that, like, the editing and, that, and the pacing, I mean, the pacing from that perspective was actually really good. Yeah. Um, and I like how, you know, he he already knew the password, and so then he of course he
2: shows up with the taxi, which I just that oh my god, you're drawing attention to yourself, dude. <laughs> well, but how much of an? I'm I'm sorry, but that seems to again that's the kind of a boob move because uh, okay, you're a wealthy doctor in Manhattan, you can afford a limo to You know what I'm saying? Right. <laughs> <You> can, <laughs> Well, you know what I but that's the whole was... thing. He's out in the open. Like He's mm-hmm. not even thinking like these other men are thinking. He's just like, oh, yeah. everything's at my disposal. I'm just a naive... I, know about, you know. I kind of also felt, though,
0: like maybe part of that was that he wanted to use cash and we, it's not sure how much cash he actually had.
2: Oh, okay, I
0: see. But also, okay. because if he started putting things on his credit card, I think it, it would show up on the, uh, the bill... Uh, later on, and his wife would probably open and go what why did you rent a taxi or i mean yeah, uh, yeah. why did you rent a limousine and what yeah, are all yeah. these charges on here for
2: <laughs> <laughs> yeah,
0: true <laughs> you know because it also felt almost like he was trying to keep this from her
3: and he, he i think yeah he he definitely was I think after everything, he seemed like, yeah. okay, how do I explain this to my wife that I was out?" All last night on a sexual misadventure, <laughs> more, more sexual misadventure, and I just happened to run into a, a secret society cult where everyone is fucking.
0: Yeah. Now, okay, so at the party, was the woman who sacrificed herself?
2: Was she that same woman at the start of the film? No. So no. the woman at the start of the film, Mandy, yeah, is the same one that ends up dead at the end of the movie. But I thought okay. she Amanda was a- Cur- um, yeah. Amanda Curran,
3: uh-huh. and then
2: the woman that saves him or like sacrifices herself or whatever yeah. is completely unrelated. Okay. Ah, so now she- it's there. It's there to sort of like mm-hmm. confuse you because it's like this is a connecting thread, but you know what well, I'm really saying? It's but, like, a red herring. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, and I, I had to literally look back into yeah, the, I-
0: the trivia to find that. But she- I thought that. I could have sworn that in that scene, at in the pool, or when you know when they're standing next to the pool table, that he was saying that Amanda was there, but they brought her home after yes, the but,
2: party. But he tells him that because he's t- he's basically spinning him a yarn. He's basically telling him a story that he wants him to believe. Because if you really read into the dialogue that Sidney Pollack delivers in this scene, he basically is telling him. Everything that you have will disappear if you say anything. If you do not believe what I'm telling you right now, like I felt that this scene, like informing him, like and again, he's a kind of a dumb character, but he's basically saying, "Hey, you know, believe what I'm telling you, or things can get really ugly." Kind of. Mm -hmm. That's, I mean, that's my takeaway from that whole scene. Is like, this is what you need to believe to move forward. (laughs) Right. Okay. Yeah, it's it's, it's, that's my interpretation. Mm Hmm.
0: Well, you know, it's interesting because, like, the way that Tom Cruise is reacting is almost like putting us uh, in his character. Like, that's exactly what we're doing at The Saint. And, uh, now, okay, <laughs> what do you guys think of Tom Cruise? Like, do you think he's a little too nasally in this film? Nasally how? Well, like, every time he, he does a big reaction, like... Uh, it almost seems like he's breathing too much through his
2: nose. Um, I I didn't notice that, but <laughs> one thing I will say about Kubrick and his direction to actors is he sometimes prefers an over like an over affectation uh, in dialogue, right? Okay. Where like, and you can really most see it in Matthew Modine in Full Metal Jacket and the way he talks. Yeah, just sort of a that's sort true. of an unnatural delivery. Mm-hmm. And he prefers this because he Jack Nicholson said to him one time, well, I know what's what's real and what's, you know, and that's not real. And it's like, you know, what would I you know? And he's like, OK, well, Jack, what would I do? What would I do? That's natural. Okay. And he's like, well, do you do, do <laughs> this? Because that's natural. It's like it may be natural, but it's not interesting. <laughs> you know? and yeah. I, I kind of love that line huh. because it, it's true about his films. They're not realistic or set in reality or or whatever you want to call it. Um, they're very much dreamlike kind of um, infused movies with lots of atmosphere and feeling and it, it inf- like you're informed by his insistence. Mm-hmm. But um, yeah, I, I just I think that you do find that in a lot of the performances aren't exactly naturalistic. There is a sort of a heightened a heightened aspect to them, uh, something like the killing of a sacred deer is is similar in it's like you know it, it that goes a little little too far with its dialogue being <laughs> stilted and odd but right. it's that kind of thing it's sort of to create i think an atmosphere for the movie
0: oh interesting yeah i guess i hadn't thought about that i just i don't know like i really like tom cruise but sometimes mm-hmm. i i just notice these little things that should have absolutely nothing to do with the film watching experience <laughs> but i pick yeah. up on them now and i feel like I, I pick up on these things more and more as i get older that I just mm-hmm. notice these really weird things that, like, I guess it would be <laughs> called nitpicking, right? Mm-hmm. Right. <laughs> like that sort of thing, like noticing it sounds like he's talking a lot through his nose almost.
2: <laughs> yeah.
3: <laughs> but that's actually, just, what, you know. Yeah, no, Good. What What nitpick I have, um, mm-hmm. it's when Tom Cruise is, again, walking the middle of the street. He runs into a uh, prostitute, and it that whole scene, it feels like it, – uh, it almost feels like Tom Cruise has no idea it, of what's happening or how hooking up with a prostitute prostitute works.
2: He's blissfully <laughs> unaware, right? Yeah. He's blissfully unaware. It's just like he's a little boy who, like, walked out into the world. But it but, like, dude, be, seriously, you don't
3: eat- – like seriously, you don't know that that she's a hooker and she's basically asking you to come over to her place to have sex with her. You don't see that.
0: <laughs> <laughs> Although he did, he did bring up money once they got inside.
2: Yeah, but no, you're right. But but that's like that's what I'm talking about. There is a dreamlike quality to that yeah. scene. You know, that shot of them on the street corner and then just walking, and it's like. I don't know. It's like the scene has a momentum of its own that exists outside of what's happening, if that makes any sense. It's yeah. like there's something happening literally behind the camera that Kubrick set up to, like, to compel us forward. And I don't know. It's There's just a weird – there is a weird attraction to what is happening on the screen, but that also uh, – like reviles me, <laughs> like makes me want to like, it's it's like, I don't want to get too close but I'm fascinated so I can't look away I don't, it's something along those lines So what did you guys think of the ending then?
3: Uh Ah, it, it, uh, uh, wow Uh, it's interesting because, well the whole thing, again the whole thing, it just feels like, okay they're, they're the title eyes wide shut, it just feels like they're the whole again, like I said, the whole thing feels like it's it's a dream, and this is the end of the dream. This is basically where they wake up, and, and, and metaphorically, in a sense, too, mm-hmm. where Tom Cruise kind of wakes up and realizes, I have a, I have it pretty good, and I really don't need to um, fuck around with things I don't understand, I don't know or right. understand. Yeah,
0: like I just I, I appreciated that. You know, it's almost like, well, where do we go from here? And she goes, well, we just keep loving each other, and we just do what we do. You
2: know? And like we almost, need to do something you know. very important soon. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, I, I really thought it was perfect, because the title, to me, uh, is referencing Tom Cruise's character. Because he really is oblivious at this up to this point. Mm-hmm. Um, and really, mostly through the movie, where it's just like, you, you're, I, I mean... 'Cause you can say he wakes up at the end of the movie, which is certainly a way to look at that look at that and especially explore the title, but I also feel like the whole night was his like was his eye opening experience of like, what what is around me? Like what is possible, what is going like what what happens, you know, what do my friends get up to, basically? And then to feel like, you know, secure and, and satisfied in okay, this is my life, I can I can do this life, I can manage it um you know and it comes you know it comes after the mask being on the pillow you know and of and it does show both of them pretty emotionally drained you know both kind of have red eyes and look look kind of uh, emotionally spent so i think that there was definitely some additional you know discussion <laughs> yeah or maybe not i don't know but uh because it doesn't really state that but um yeah i just i think it's a really wonderful ending and it, it was really well done
0: okay well let's uh, start wrapping this up um yep so okay first question then basically is is it a good film a great film or not
3: I think, uh, it's honestly a great movie it, it, it i mean if i if the biggest compliment is that i can't not for, for one minute I could not take my eyes off the screen and kind of piece together what was going on, and I can't say that for a lot of movies. So it, mm-hmm. it it's a great, it's a great great film. Okay, maybe, maybe if yeah. anything, I want to dive back into this movie again.
2: Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. I it's only the second time I've seen it, and it's definitely something I want to watch uh, a, a few more times at the very least. I think it is a great movie. I um I think that it discuss uh, dis- explores ideas that frankly aren't easy to talk about and that almost and and again we're it's not we're not hit over the head with these things they're they're really shown in this compositionally like pleasing way and it's mysterious and it's it's haunting and it um i don't know it touches like the very heights of society i mean it's i think it's a really great film and um i'm really happy that kubrick was able to complete it before he unfortunately passed away
0: yeah well, I'm with you guys. I think it's a great film, too, despite, you know, my little nitpicks, like the pacing.
2: Mm-hmm. Um, the breathing, right? <laughs>
0: yeah, that, too. <laughs> you know, okay, and my my other question, then, is, is it mm-hmm. is it top five
2: Kubrick? I haven't seen all of Stanley Kubrick's movies, so I don't know that I could answer it completely, but I would say... Um, I would probably say like two thousand one and Barry Lyndon are, are really tops for me and then I'd probably say Eyes Wide Shut honestly might be the third best Kubrick movie I've seen. I've seen his I've seen everything I guess after uh Doctor Strangelove. Mm-hmm. But everything mm-hmm. before I have not seen. I, I have it on my list to watch, but I haven't seen like Killer's Kiss, yeah. uh The Killing, um Pass of Glory. Of, exactly, yep. Okay.
0: How about you, Jonathan?
3: Uh I'm in the same boat as Rob. I've I haven't watched a lot of Stanley Kubrick, but I've only seen I've seen 2001 uh, and Spartacus. This is like I think third move of his movies I've seen, but okay. I, this is probably the one I of those three. I think 2001 I like a lot. I like more of uh, the best, and this one's like a, probably like a, a really good second.
0: Okay. Well, I'm thinking for myself, it doesn't quite break the top five. But I think yeah. it'd be right around number six for me. Because my favorite is The Shining.
4: Mm-hmm.
0: And then I'd have to go 2001, second. And then um, A Clockwork Orange, third. Full Metal Jacket, fourth. And Doc... No, wait a minute. i got to have Doctor Strangelove. Okay, I think I would put Doctor Strangelove... Fourth and Full Metal Jacket, fifth. And then, yeah, then I would go Eyes Wide Shut, sixth. So just outside the top five, but still really good. Definitely one of his best films. And uh, it's, it's, I'm glad that this was the film that he ended his career on, to be frank. I, yeah. I mean, it's, it's, it's right up there as, you know, those dream like films that I think uh, that's kind of, in some ways, can kind of sum up his whole career.
2: Yeah. All right. Well, well Jonathan, I, uh, yeah. I, I I look forward to you to hearing what you think about *A Clockwork Orange* because it took oh, me absolutely. like three watches to get through. it.
0: No, oh, really? Oh, wow. <laughs> yeah, and I then also Orange, *The Shining*. Frankly, since you haven't seen yeah.
3: that yet. Well, I, I mean *Full Metal Jacket* is on Netflix, so I'll probably check that out. Okay. Um, yeah. I mean, I think *A uh, Clockwork Orange* was on Netflix, but I don't know if it's still. I don't know if it's still on there anymore.
0: Yeah, I'm not sure.
2: Uh, I don't think so, but.
0: Well, anyway, uh, so, well, thank you for listening, everybody. Uh, We hope that you enjoyed our discussion about 1999 and specifically Eyes Wide Shut. I think uh, going forward, um, I think we're going to have Bea uh, host the uh, next episode. And then I think she's going to delve into uh, some of the results she's gotten on her Twitter polls. So if you want to go follow her, you can go look for her as B. Garner on on Twitter. And uh, we're all on Twitter as well, so if you want to follow any any of us, uh, I'm under Listman1982. Rob, you're under? Uh, It's
2: at Rob underscore Motto, M-O-T-T-O.
3: And I'm at at Mr. uh, Mr. Brown underscore 23. And then, of
0: course, Robin is at Filmotomy, I think, Um, something like that. Just look for Filmotomy, frankly. And uh, (laughs) go to the site, filmotomy.com, check it out, lots of good stuff. We just got done with a whole bunch of stuff on um, Martin Scorsese, and now we're going to be moving on to some foreign language stuff, I think, uh, in the near future. So lots of good stuff ahead. So, uh, yeah, stay tuned.
4: Somebody wants... Hey now, you're an all-star, get your game on, go play. Hey now, you're a rock star, get the show on, get paid. And all that glitters is gold. Only shooting stars break the mold. It's a cool place